Hey, Jordan, how's it going? How are you holding up? Been better. Yeah, yeah, tell me about it. It's, um, you know, it's one of those days when it's like you're sitting, you have to go, you have to go to work, you have to go do your job. And with something so terrible just hanging over your head, it makes it really tricky. But I feel like that's what Colin Powell would have wanted. He would have wanted us to set all that aside. He wouldn't want us to mope around, feel sorry for ourselves. He'd want us to get back on the horse and get started and do this podcast. And that's what, that's the energy I'm trying to bring to this podcast today. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm at the point where I'm going to have to talk to Judy and HR and see if I can just take bereavement because I'm so distraught uh, over this. He was a dedicated civil servant. Uh, he was brave and fearless on the battlefield. And he gave one of the most courageous, courageous testimonies in front of the United Nations uh, when we were uh, taking on Iraq and, and tracking down their WMDs uh, that I can remember. I, I don't really... Yeah, it was well, incredible. I don't, I don't know what happened after that, but I'm sure it went well. Well, I mean, a lot of... A, a couple of those things that he talked about in that speech, my understanding is that was proven to be not accurate. Um, I, again, I don't know the specifics, but I, I don't think that's controversial to point that out. But it's what some of these people don't understand. I saw people kind of like doing this kind of end zone celebration today over this. And it's like, do you not understand? People make mistakes. Have you never made a mistake? He said he was sorry. He said he was sorry. Yeah. He said, and he said even more important than saying the two words of I'm sorry, even more importantly, the two words that he said later on in life, which are even more important than that, which is Trump bad. And how can you hold anything against him after he says that he does the right, he did the right thing. And yes, so we made, so we quote unquote made a few mistakes that led to, you know, like the highway of death in, in the Gulf War and, you know, a number of other quote-unquote war crimes. Like, you like you know, I've made mistakes. I've done things that I regret. We've we've all done that. We contain multitudes. And people don't want to respect that. You know, it's really disappointing. Yeah, it's um, it's called growth. And yeah. I think a lot of the, uh, the in-crowd uh, cancel culture left just needs to, to accept that. People can change. Yeah. Well, that's why this this uh, episode and all future episodes really will be dedicated to the memory of Colin Powell. Prayers up. This one goes out to his family. Yeah, rest shout in out, power. Shout out to his family. things that just it never be, it never gets less funny like every time i watch that clip the shout out to his family clip it becomes more funny it's I don't, like I defies wonder, the laws of comedy and i don't understand how it works but it's just it never stops being funny to me oh yeah absolutely i wonder if he even knew like what was happening or they were just like <laughs> hey you're in the states sorry there's this big thing you gotta at least say something yeah. and he just kind of like phoned it in he thought it was like a fan <laughs> or something or whatever yeah. i don't know yeah. <laughs> so so awkward and then they immediately just he samples martin luther king and then the bass drops just <laughs> what a touching tribute and racism was solved that day it was fixed mm-hmm. <laughs> oh. thank you thank you david um <laughs> uh, welcome everyone to the insurgents it's episode 82 
Thanks for tuning in. We have a really, really great episode coming up for you. There's a, a little bit of a strike wave happening. It's as as our guest is pointing out, it cautioned us against like using this kind of language because there still needs to be a way to go. But we're seeing some really incredible and inspiring um, action uh, by working people like throughout the United States and Canada and elsewhere right now. It's long overdue. And we had on uh, Jonah Furman to uh, to come on and, and explain all this to, uh, stuff to us today, which he did. It was really, really informative and interesting. Uh, I think people are really going to enjoy this this talk we had with Jonah. Um, Jonah has a substack called Who Gets the Bird? And he's with Labor Notes. And it was highly informative, uh, you know, without veering on dry or stale or boring like this is relevant to you this is relevant to your work everyone that you work with um could benefit from hearing what he has to say and we think about the downstream effects of workers like at kellogg like at john deere and like uh iotzi and in uh the film and tv industry either on strike or potentially going on strike along with the many many other unions currently on strikes around the country there are downstream societal effects that impact your wages your benefits whatever um so it's it's a really relevant conversation even if you're not in a union or if you don't know anybody in these unions or even haven't been paying attention if you are a worker this is pertinent to your interests yeah. so i would highly highly recommend you you pay attention to what jonah has to say it was really great yeah yeah so he's gonna be coming on the show in just a few minutes um jordan is there anything else what do you got going on right now Anything interesting going on in uh, Jordan Jordan Land? You want to update us on? Yeah, I've been watching a lot of scary movies lately. It's pretty pretty exciting stuff. Okay. Yeah, I watched the new Halloween movie last night. It is spoopy movie season. It is. Yeah. Um, have you heard of this movie Lamb? Uh, yes, I have heard of it. I don't really know what the deal is. I I saw the the one sheet for it, and it looks um the one sheet is cool, but I have no idea sheet. what this movie is about. Like a poster? Well, the poster in the biz oh, is what one we call sheet? the poster in the in the biz. The movie business. Get your fucking you know. elitist tones out of here. <laughs> a one, oh, this is a movie mindset guy. I'm a movie sheet. mindset guy. Are you a film yeah. guy now? You got letterbox reviews? Oh, yeah. Do you do oh, that? Yeah. I don't. I have a letterbox account that I've been using to keep track of the stuff that I watch, but I haven't gotten... I, I just haven't really had the time to do the in-depth reviews mm. of films. But one day, I'm going to get. I'm gonna start getting to I want to be one of those guys. Like, not the guys yeah. who are, like, in f- films, but the guy who, like leaves funny letterbox reviews and then immediately screenshots it and tweets it out like <laughs> aren't i clever <laughs> those guys always yeah. crack me up exactly you can be one of those I guys so did you jokes. see is is did you see lamb or is that something you're going to see or why did I you did okay. um and i'm curious i don't know anybody i i know like one or two other people who've seen it and they didn't really care for it but I'm like trying to find someone else who has seen it so I could talk about it with him because my partner didn't see it. Um, I'm just, this is like a classified ad, like lonely, lonely film yeah. guy needs, <laughs> needs someone to talk about a movie with. I'm like, there's some of it that I'm confused about and there aren't like really enough articles breaking it down because they're veering. They don't want to veer into spoilers. Okay. So if you've seen Lamb, please let me know. Well, I'll try to I'll try to see it so I can give update you on this. How was the new Halloween? Was that good? You I did. That. Yeah, I watched that last night. It was corny, uh, but endearing. Um, yeah. It was like some of the dial, you know, the just the campy horror movie dialogue. I kind of I kind of liked it. 
and it had some of the best kill sequences that I've seen in horror movies in a very long time. It was like really intense. It was fun. And I was able to stream it, which is a new thing. I really like that we're able to stream new movies. Yeah, yeah, that is fun. Um, And that's the thing. It's it's hard to touch the John Carpenter original, I feel. But although, I mean, it's not like the series has really maintained that level of creative quality um, (laughs) over the decades. And I do like the creative team that they they brought on for that. I believe it's uh, David Gordon Green. Yeah, I think that's an that's an interesting choice for to bring back for this for this franchise. Um, I've been watching a lot of spoopy movies too. What are you watching lately? It's so because I've been doing like movie nights in the in the Discord server, which has been really fun. Nice. I've been introducing some of my the people that congregate in my Discord server to uh, some classic horror films. We watched a couple weeks ago. We watched um, The Thing. Okay. Nineteen eighty, the classic John Carpenter film, The Thing from nineteen eighty two, which is one of my all time favorite horror movies. Have you seen that one? I have not. Oh man, you got to see The Thing. Very very important that you see watch this movie this season. Amazing, amazing movie. Uh, we watched uh, on Saturday night. We watched Invasion of the Body Snatchers from nineteen seventy eight. Oh, Donald you're going super classic. Okay. Oh, I, 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 I love this stuff. I've seen this movie many many times. Um, one of my another one of my favorite movies ever. Um, we watched Dawn of the Dead a few weeks ago. I've been watching all the classics. I've been reaching back to the classics of horror, the horror genre, which I, I really love a lot. That's been really fun. Um, nice. What spoopy movies have you been watching, folks? Let us know in the comments uh, when you like, share, and subscribe this post, as I know you all do. Um, what else is going on? I'm excited for basketball season. I'm really looking forward to that. That's starting this week. I'm very hyped for that. That's fun. Um, I can't process more than one sport at a time. Yeah, I'm basically the same. So I'll, yeah. I'll do football, and then I'll watch the World Series, and then when football ends, then I'll try to pay attention to basketball. I can't do it. But do you think the Raptors, how do you think the Raptors are going to do this year? You are a big Raptors guy. Yeah, um, I think the key with the Raptors this year is that expectations are pretty low. There's a lot, but the 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 possibilities of what it might turn into in two to three years' time, I think, is what's really enticing right now. Um, so I'm just looking forward to the season. I don't have a ton of expectations. I do expect that they'll probably make the playoffs, but I'm just looking forward to seeing how these kind of young pieces develop. They basically just have this like totally brand new way of team building, where they're just trying to populate the entire t- team with guys that are like six foot eight and have super long arms that can just play any position. They're kind of like trying to reinvent what a basketball team can kind of look like, and An it's all kind of forwards team. Exactly, just all big, long dudes that are super athletic that can play any position. Isn't that uh, just like the concept of the Monstars in It in is, space. but they're trying to do that in real life. That's exactly, oh. they're trying to bring that to the real life court. It's really exciting. <laughs> Didn't, um, I did see, I don't think it was this Sunday, but maybe it was last week, that the Browns played like one of the best games in NFL history and still lost. Dude. Did that happen? Yeah. Because I thought it, whenever, whenever, whenever I see what the, the Browns disappointing people horribly i always think oh, jordan's probably the upset chargers right now. um and like it was just because justin herbert just fucking went off um and they lost by like just a couple points but yeah they yeah That's it sucks and then they lost this week to the cardinals who are undefeated i think one of the only undefeated teams now um cardinals are six and zero. but like look it sucks but their losses are to yeah one of the only undefeated remaining undefeated teams, barely losing to Herbert playing lights out and I th- and then the Chiefs like all right whatever it's still they still got a lot of football to play are they still expected to do- make a run probably the, I mean the they're playoffs? definitely like still in contention okay well that'd be cool I hope that works out for you and the rest of the long suffering 
Cleveland sports fandom. Yeah, I mean, it might not be the year, um, but it's look, it's anything is better than the late 2000, mid to late 2000s Browns before that one year where they made the playoffs um, and they had the other year where they like went like 10 and six. Um, every other year was just like three wins, four wins, whatever. Like this is the first time where there's been like back to back to back years where it's like you're going into a game expecting to win. That's a new feeling. That is nice too. It's very weird. Yeah, yeah it's it's weird when you're a fan of a long suffering franchise. I'm familiar with that as well. Yeah. Like, what dude, is like, this? I mean, I'm not familiar I, with this feeling of hope and optimism. I only know pain, pain yeah. and suffering. <laughs> so it's brutal. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm rooting for you. I love underdog sports franchises. So that's 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 one of the all timers. So I hope they fulfill all these things. <laughs> um, let's bring on let's bring on Jonah now. Again, everyone's going to really enjoy this this conversation with Jonah Furman. Really, really good stuff. And Jonah's going to be joining the program right after this. Yeah, what's the spiciest thing you've ever eaten? No, 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 I don't, I have no interest. I have no interest in spicy. I mean, I have little no. interest in food, like any sort of exploration food-wise, but certainly not spicy. Oh, are you a picky eater? No, I'm, I'm, I'm actually the opposite, but I would never seek out spicy. You mean okay. you wouldn't intentionally do something that may not, physically no. hurt you and make no. you feel that bad? Hurt you. Yeah. No, I would sooner do what the cinnamon stance. spoon. You know the spoonful of cinnamon. <laughs> that I like that video of that lady doing that. I would. That's another that. one that people get. They feel confident about, right? Because they're yeah, like, it's "How is it easy? It's cinnamon. a spoonful yeah. of cinnamon. No I problem. Have cinnamon all the time. It's <laughs> <Tastes> good. <laughs> oh, a hubris. Hubris. I would try that. Pride cometh before the fall. As they I say. try the cinnamon thing just for fun. How hard can it I be? I don't know. I does. It can't be that hard. I think it's they're I think they're exaggerating a little bit some of these folks. Yeah. I don't know. All right. Rob's gonna do it uh, <laughs> after this tonight. <laughs> I'm gonna take a big spoonful of cinnamon and a hot chip and just be like, what's the big deal? Then I'm gonna need five saltines. Remember that challenge as well? That also one didn't yeah. make sense. And a gallon of milk in a, in a, in like an hour though. <laughs> Someone needs to do all though. of these. <laughs> um I I will never do the milk one. I think milk is just absolutely disgusting. I just I hate it. I think it's just ever since i was a kid you know what it was i was like four or five and i was at a friend's house and he had a cup of milk that had been sitting in his room for a couple of days and it was hard and he put his <sighs> finger in it and it was like yeah it was like con- the consistency of jello is like milk jello and that moment has been burned in my brain now for since if i was like five it's 29 more years and i will not drink milk but you will eat like a pepper that could kill you but i i will eat the hottest pepper on the planet yeah that makes more sense for a good cause for a good cause absolutely more on that once we have it finalized aida's yeah. in the chat what's up aida aida are you able to see that jenna i don't know i'm like i see this just sort of i don't know we're in some sort of this is like ready player one that's my, <laughs> that's <laughs> this my is pretty futuristic stuff yeah. dude three yeah. people yeah. on screen at one time you guys got like i don't know you're in like Rob looks like you're on a movie poster with the That's right, yeah. And blue. I take this sh- I take this streaming shit seriously. What's that movie nice. called? What's the movie called? What's it about? Rob's the movie. movie. Oh, oh, I I didn't Rob, mean like I'd say I'm like an elite. Movie. I'm like an elite hacker type because that's more the reflection yeah. of the reality. 
I think. I'm just kind of that, like a that's super it's like swordfish. computer savvy. Yeah, <laughs> yes. like that kind of Swordfish thing. too. Rob hacks in and cancels right. all the student loans. That's Jordan, right. that makes you um, John Travolta and, <laughs> and me Halle Berry. <laughs> yeah, you do look like Halle Berry. I believe Berry. that's how I've that works. Yeah. I believe that's how that works. <laughs> um, everyone, <laughs> oh thank you for tuning in. And our guest, as you can see, is Jonah Furman. And Jonah's joining us to talk about the strike wave. Uh, Jonas with labor notes. He's been, you know, keeping meticulous tabs on all of the happenings across uh, the country. Really, really um, encouraging moment in the labor sector in the United States. So, who better than Jonah to break it down? So, guys, you ready? Yeah, I've actually been recording the audio this whole time because we were doing some amusing banter <laughs> oh, there that I wanted to banter, capture some of. Banter. You always want to get that lighthearted banter in there. Everyone loves that. <laughs> You're gonna undermine oh, my persona. <laughs> okay jonah we start these conversations the same way uh, we start with a hardball question we want to know who we're dealing with and you're no different jonah are you a gamer oh uh you know i play a little bit of Fortnite. that's do you that's, there we yeah, go i do oh I do play a little bit of Fortnite when i need to unwind Fortnite. so yeah i game a little bit uh you know i play on mute which i feel like is you know it's not not psychotic yeah well you know <laughs> the, the sounds scare me and they make me worse so yeah yeah I do you turn like the do you turn the visual audio cues on i don't know what to what you refer uh i'm a highly i guess is there like subtitles gamer. that's like no, animal no. growling or footsteps <laughs> if you're or something? no if you're playing without sound you should turn these on so what it will do is it's an accessibility feature but some like a lot of like pros use it because it does help, like, it visualizes everything around you. So if you're, like, you know, you're facing one direction and there's steps behind you, it'll signal, wow. it'll show like, little feet behind you or gunshots to your right. Mm. So you will still have some situational awareness and you don't have to, you don't have to put the sound on. Jordan's it's, a tier one operator. That's the performance kind of enhancing. That's, yeah. uh, I don't know. <laughs> I would be disqualified for the Olympics for that. So. You think? I, I think so. Well, I just want you to succeed. Thank that you. is a game that I play. Uh, here and there and i think rob does as well i dabble yeah i dabble in that a little bit we're big fortnite guys here yeah <laughs> um but on a serious note jonah um who are you and you are with labor notes and you have a uh, a sub stack who gets the worm uh, but for people who are unaware who are you what do you do and your background as an organizer and i know there's a ton of uh, bernard brothers here in the chat who might know of your work without knowing that you helped uh you know, put put some of these things together during the the primary. Uh, yeah, I'm. Um, I guess I would describe myself as sort of uh, in the left labor movement, whatever that means, in the reform wing of the labor movement, kind of the Bernie Krat wing of the labor movement. So I've been an organizer for something like six years uh, in the teachers and the teamsters. I currently work for Labor Notes uh, and just. So people know Labor Notes is, you know, it's been around for about 45 years and it's an organization that has both a media wing and an organizing wing. And it's essentially trying to tell the story of the labor movement from the members perspective and connect people across unions who are trying to, you know, organize more strikes and better contracts and democracy in their unions. So, you know, we uh, not everyone in the labor movement loves Labor Notes, but we love Labor Notes. Uh, and uh 
yeah, before that, I, I've been an organizer with Bernie Sanders. I was the national labor organizer. Um, and, you know, one thing that's crazy about this moment where there's like this John Deere stuff in Iowa is that like 18 months ago, 20 months ago, whatever it was, I was in Iowa with Bernie and organizing these, you know, Ethiopian meatpacking workers. And it was like this national moment around this thing. And now we're like back there sort of like, you know, reinterpreting that exact same event as uh you know a different a different strike a different moment but so yeah i've been i've been around um and i write and i try and connect with rank and file union members from across every industry every union especially people who are fighting for their union to be stronger more democratic uh and connect with people outside their workplace outside their local area um and I, apologies they they hammered me in the chat it's who gets the bird i guess i I confused uh the early bird getting the worm with your substack so it's who gets the bird and thank you to lodane for the for the the command to prompt people to subscribe and people should um because following this kind of stuff and it's like very once the more you're informed the easier it is to show solidarity and support strike funds to show solidarity and different acts of solidarity express different acts of solidarity with uh unions who are who are taking action and there's a ton of these happening all over the country and you uh, wrote or posted it a couple, like a week or two ago, formally announced, yes, we're in a strike wave. Um, so what's, what's happening across the country and how do we get here, Jonah? It's a great question. I, you know, I am known among friends as a pessimist. I do not like the idea of saying, you know, things are, are looking up. It's an upsurge. We're, we're in a new moment. And like, reluctantly, I have admitted that something is happening. I think, um, you know, we can go into this as deep as you want, but just big picture, what's what's going on is essentially we're seeing strike activity in this country similar to like the mid 80s, which is not like, you know, the 40s and it's not like the 70s when there was like massive actions of hundreds of thousands of workers striking. But it is sort of like, uh, you know, we're on the the upswing of a trough that we've been in for 40 years. Um, and so specifically what I'm talking about are, of course, the John Deere workers, 10,000 workers, mostly in Iowa, Illinois, but also some in Kansas, Colorado, Georgia. Um, I'm also talking about 2000 hospital workers in Buffalo who've been on strike for a few weeks now. Um, talking about a thousand miners been on strike for over six months, groups of hundreds of workers in Massachusetts at a hospital in Worcester, um, whiskey makers in Kentucky. And especially seeing strikes on the horizon. So, you know, on Saturday, a couple of days ago, um, the IATSE strike, the film and TV workers, they have a something, they have a tentative agreement they have to vote on, but still could happen. We'll see. Um, but there's also 40,000 hospital workers across three states at Kaiser Healthcare Giant, who are also really close to some kind of strike. Um, and it feels like and and I think not just feels like, but uh, there's some evidence that uh, workers in this country are acting more than they have in the past. They're striking more than they have in the past. Um, you know, there's a lot of ways you can look at the stats or whatever. But if you look at, you know, five years ago, the number of large strikes was getting close to zero, literally none. When in, you know, in the 70s and 80s, large strikes of over a thousand workers would be in the dozens. Uh, earlier than that, it was in the hundreds. So we really got close to a labor movement that was not meaningfully striking at scale, was not growing at scale. We're not out of that 
Um, the labor movement is still not striking at scale. Um, you know, one thing I like to tell people is that in 1945-46, the biggest strike wave in this country, one in 10 workers went on strike. If we saw that today, it'd be about 17 wow. million striking <clears throat> wow. workers. Um, but we're seeing something like 100,000. So we're not really close to that at all. But we are seeing some kind of response to uh, the past 18 months um, that's taken the form of more activity than we've ever seen, you know, at least for decades. Yeah, I think it's one of the amazing things about this moment as we're seeing these different strikes coming together, um, especially given the way working people have been the fr at the front lines of this pandemic for the last 18 months. Um, often, you know, putting their very lives on the line to, you know, deliver stock our grocery shelves, deliver food, work in factories, uh, and do all the things that we need to do in order for society to keep running. Meanwhile, there's been this massive upward transfer of wealth in the other direction, and all the wealth is being tra transferred um, from the hands of working people to the, the most wealthiest people on the planet. And you have to, when you see this go on, you have to start wondering at some point, like, when is it, what is the limit going to be for people when they start exercising some of this power that they have? And it's so, it's amazing to see this kind of start to form over the last couple of weeks because there's a sense of like that this has been so needed, so desperately needed throughout the last 18 months. And it's, it's incredible and really inspiring to see this kind of finally start to snowball into like a big movement where people are realizing the power that they have as working people. Yeah. I would, I would just say on that, like, um, you know, on the deer strike right now, they're wearing these T-shirts that say deemed essential in 2020, prove it in 2021, can't build it from home. You know, like the idea of the pandemic is is totally front and center for these workers at deer. And I think more broadly, what we're seeing is like so we see on the news Taco Bell workers put up a sign at work and say we all quit today. So, you know, no tacos. This is like that's like the unorganized individual response. I mean, you look at the stats, there's more people quitting their job now than people have ever seen. It was something like four and a half million or, you know, in the in the recent most recent stat that they put out. Um, that's what you do if you are just like, screw it, I'm done, you know. But if you have a union or you're organized in some way that you don't have to just cut an individual deal you can stay and fight. I mean, that's really what we're seeing. This is the organized version of the mass quitting. Instead of mass quitting, if you're in a union, you say, we'll quit, but with conditions for when we come back. I mean, that's what the strike is, you know? Um, you have leverage, you have organization. So I really do feel like part of what we're seeing is, you know, my focus is on the unions. I'm obsessed with unions. I think they're incredibly interesting institutions. I talk to union members all day. There's all these reasons why I focus on that. But I think it's all part of the same thing we're seeing in the economy. The tight labor market that people talk about is basically means that I know you can't replace me right now, so I've got a ton of leverage. And when you uh, can just get another job and you don't think you can fix your current job, you'll just say, screw it, I'm out. But if you work at John Deere and your dad worked at John Deere and you want your son to work at John Deere, you don't have to say, just screw it, I'm out. You can say, actually, we're going to fix the problems that have been here since, I mean, idea it's since 1997 is when they first bargained this terrible contract. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it's really inspiring to see the connection here between what non-union workers are doing and what unionized collective action can do. You've been keeping tabs on uh, how John Deere has tried to continue operations without their unionized staff or uh, without their skilled staff uh, on, on the floor. And that's led to like day one, I think there was like an accident. Um, and also like, could you talk a little bit about how, you know, this is a highly profitable 
company who just gave their CEO a colossal raise, which I think was like 160% increase uh, from 2019 salary to 2020 salary. And then the, the raise over five years they offered to staff in the initial proposal was like a buck 50 or something like that. Uh, yeah, less. Yeah. Less than that. Yeah. It's yeah. like, it's insulting. This is like a, a highly profitable enterprise who absolutely could afford to pay them higher wages. And they're just trying to like, what, replace them with like office scabs? Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing. I mean, the big, so the big, you know, financials of it are, it's not just a profitable company. It's the most profitable this company has ever been in its history. And, you know, whatever, adjust for inflation, you can do all the math or whatever. They're about to make $6 billion in profits this year, 5.9. Since the pandemic started, their stock price doubled. You know, this is like good for business for them. Um, Meanwhile, the workers, like, there's a million ways you can slice and dice this and figure it out. But like, because of how the contract is structured there, there was workers there in 2012 who were making more than what's in this offer, uh, this new offer from the company. So wages are not keeping up with, even if you look at inflation, they're not even where they should be if they just kept pace, you know, over the past 25 years, but certainly not with profits. You know, there's no, there's no way in which, you know, workers aren't getting 160% raise. Um, and just something else I would say about wages at Deere, like, you know, uh, dear workers don't make what people think is like a, you know, a nice union cushy job where you make like 40 bucks an hour. They're making 20 bucks an hour. You know, these and they're watching Fight for 15 at the fast food restaurants, you know, and they're seeing minimum wage rises and they're seeing Amazon pay $21 in Seattle. You know, like it's not sure they have good benefits. They have some of them have some pensions, but like these are a lot of workers, especially in the pandemic when they were laid off, they were making like, I mean, one worker reached out to me was making less than 40 grand in a year. Has worked there for over a decade. So they haven't kept up with profits. They haven't kept up with inflation. They haven't kept up with what we think is a fair wage for almost anyone, uh, let alone someone who's making machines that, you know, the, the worker who uh, who was telling me about their less than 40K Last year, they work on a line where they make they put out forty tractors a day that each sell for six hundred thousand dollars. You know, I mean, yeah. you do the math on this, and it's like it's it's crazy. They can seriously pay more. Bill Gates owns a billion dollars in stock of John Deere and has a, a guy who sits on the board because he knows that it's it's mega profitable. You know, this is like a billionaire where you're going to put your money places that are going to make more money. So, you know, it's it's a joke that they couldn't afford uh, more. Can we talk about some of these like kind of hilarious stories yeah. about sending these non-unionized uh, people to try and do these jobs and just them immediately like failing and crashing shit and like lighting fires at the factory and stuff? That's yeah, been kind of incredible to see that those stories kind of start to trickle in. It's amazing. I mean, you know, it's 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 hard to talk about because these folks are screwed too, right? A lot of these just to talk about the salaried workers in 2020, dear did a reorganization, which is the euphemism they use. They, they moved a bunch of people on the salaried side, non-union side. That's, the, that's how you talk about it. Salaried is non-union, wage workers are union. So the salaried side, they moved a bunch of people into new job titles. They have, you know, so everyone's like, I didn't sign up for this job I had. And they laid off a ton of people. They call them voluntary separation. But now they're on like the skeleton staff. And now the strike happens. And they say, 
okay, you're going to go work in a warehouse. You should, you need to go buy steel toed boots, which you don't own. And you're going to work six days a week, 12 hours a day. And you're going to be stuck in traffic for three hours every morning as the picket line slows down, you know, you entering the plant and you're working with equipment you don't know how to handle and you're screwing everything up at the company. And it's like a terrible environment, let alone a lot of these salaried folks are totally sympathetic with the strikers. Like, yeah. I've had a ton of these people reach out to me and be like, what are you talking about? Like, my dad, I'm third generation deer. My dad was in the union or I came from the union side. You know, it's like, it's small town Iowa. It's not like, sure. you know, the financial district or whatever. So anyway, so they get put in these positions where they're now suddenly, you know, one guy was telling me he's like a clerical and now his job title is tractor driver. You know, like, wh- what is he supposed How to do How could this go wrong? Yeah, yeah, right. And like, <laughs> You think, you know, people were talking about, I'm going to be checking the serial numbers from this, you know, period, because I'm not letting my parents who are farmers buy a million dollar harvester for their farm, you know, on on loans that was made by someone who works in accounting. So I will say, like, some of these salary guys do have skills. It's not like to punch down on these salary okay. guys. But I also think, like, it's pretty clear what your duty is as a salaried worker right now is... Maybe you don't have to quit the first day, but you definitely need to organize your people to say, dear, we're not doing this because, you know, at the end of the day, this actually, you know, it's funny and I like sharing the stuff about how they're screwing up in the plant and, you know, but like this is really the kind of thing that breaks a strike if they can really pull it off, which I don't think they can, honestly. Um, But like this is 10,000 people's lives on the line for these, these salaried workers who they're scared too. I get it. But like, look. It's it's uh, it's 10,000 people who will lose their lose 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 what they are fighting for. Um, yeah. The chat says scabbing is still scabbing. I, uh, there's a, there's a certain line that you don't cross, you know? Yeah. So so that we touched on uh, John Deere. And if there's anything else, obviously, you want to add, by all means, I would also want to, you know, say that. And then let's also like let's talk about Kellogg's, too, because that's, that's another big one right now. Right. Well, I think we should talk about one thing that's a, that's John Deere and Kellogg's and Kaiser. And this, this I think, people need to understand. And, you know, two weeks ago, I wouldn't have even bothered trying to explain this because it's such like a wonky union thing. But I think people can really get this. The big scourge of those three potential strikes is something called two-tier. Two-tier is, you can define it in a few ways, but the traditional way to define a two-tier contract, especially a two-tier union contract, is... You get a contract that says everyone who's hired after this contract is set gets lesser conditions in some way. So it can be that everyone new gets $12 less an hour. That's the deal at Kellogg. Everyone new gets 26% less uh, in pay. That's what they're putting forward at Kaiser. And at John Deere, they're saying everybody new has no pension. So this has been, you know, in the 80s, this was like a Reagan era thing where they were like, the companies felt emboldened and they said, we're going to do two tier. We will we'll cater to the current members who are actually going to vote on the contract, give them a decent deal and say, OK, but everyone in the future gets much worse conditions in whatever way. And since then, it's spread. It started in airlines and grocery. And then in like 2008, in the, in the auto industry, when they were you know have, facing bankruptcy, they got all this two tier stuff passed in the UAW. This came to Deere in 1997. It, it came to Kellogg in the past 20 years. Um, Kaiser has had to, you know, workers at Kaiser have had to fight it a million times. The thing about two-tier, what this really means, on the Kellogg strike line, they say, we're fighting for the future, 
not for their future, but for the future of this job, even if it's not me who has it, if it's my son who has it or someone else in the community who has it. And it's not just about solidarity. It is. It's a moral stance to say, you know, a deer right now, they're saying no third tier. There was the 1997 tier, and now they're trying to do a third tier with no pensions for new hires. They're saying no third tier. It's a moral stand, but it's also about protecting the position of the contract, right? So if you are the top tier worker, within a few years, the company says, we want to hire the cheaper guys. We want the older guys to leave. You know, like, you're, why am I paying you 12 bucks more an hour? And Kellogg's, the interesting thing about the Kellogg strike is they have a two-tier system right now where the rule is it's got to be only 30% bottom tier. So, the, the, right, they cap how the lower paid workers because they don't want to just have everyone be a lower paid worker. Now Kellogg is saying, you know what? Everybody's bottom tier. We're not doing top tier anymore. And this is the end game of two tier. It's a race to the bottom within your union. And it also divides your union, right? As you see in the John Deere strike, the leverage is if all 10,000 go. It doesn't work if you have just the one tier guys go, just the second tier guys go. It's got to be all 10,000 collective action. The whole point is to stop production at the company. That's the only leverage you have as a union. So if you have this division where some people say, you're making 12 bucks more than me, I'm not going to strike for you, you know, or you sold me out last contract. I'm not going to, you know, go with you on this. It's it's like this cancer that, that in, in some ways tracks with the whole neoliberal Reagan era starting in the 80s. It was like the labor movement version of that. And for the first time, actually really GM in 2019 was the first strike we saw on a really big scale where the signs were everybody tier one. And this was like an amazing thing because you have top paid tier one workers saying, I want the temp to get more money. I want the new guy to get paid like I get paid. I don't want him to have no pension. I don't want him to have, you know, like a deer, they have a seven-month probation period. We don't want that. We want when you walk in the door and work at this place, we all make the same money because we're all in the same union. We're all on the same team. And that's, to me, is like if there's a story about the labor movement coming out of its uh, you know, defensive posture of the past 40 years, it's this two-tier thing. If we can beat two-tier and everything that means, you know, that we're not just fighting for narrow gains for a few workers, but we're fighting for the whole enchilada, everybody, um, that to me is like what these strikes mean. So we can talk about Kellogg, we can talk about Kaiser, IATSE, but like to me, that's the that's what this moment is, especially when you talk to people in the union movement. The idea that we're going to take two-tier on across unions, across the whole country, and it's going to be national news, and we can get people to understand what two-tier is and why it's so bad. Like this is, to me, that's the moment that that is happening in the unions. Yeah, and I think it is interesting to that you tie it back to the Reagan era stuff. Like you mentioned, like this is the most, pretty much the most significant strike activity we've seen um, since the 1980s, uh, and that's it's inescapable that dist- like intentionally destroying the labor movement was like a central tenet of the Reagan administration of neoliberalism in general, with Thatcher as well, and the can- Canadian component as well. Um, so it is, that's one of the reasons that this moment is so inspiring because it's like, it's not just about the last 18 months of the pandemic, but it's yes. been about this, the last several decades of worker power steadily eroding intentionally. Um, and to have start 
somehow like starting to claw some of that back. That's what's really incredible about this moment. Totally. I mean, I think what we're looking for in some ways is like our reverse PATCO. So PATCO is when Reagan fired all the air traffic controllers in 1981, just said, oh, you're on strike. You have no job anymore. This was like a signal to everybody in the private sector, everyone, that we were going to just go for the throat with the unions. Now, I don't know if Deere is the reverse PATCO. Some people have talked about the St. Vincent Hospital strikers in Massachusetts been on strike for six months. The warrior met Alabama coal miners strike for six months. People talk about, I mean, one thing I'm talking about is like, this is the time for Joe Biden, the Democratic Party to step in just like Reagan did, but on the other side, like if we're going to have a moment that signals to corporate America that you're not just going to skate, that's the course correction that we haven't seen yet. And we're, you know, I think this could be part of it. Yeah, and Biden has gotten praised for using that pro-union language and mm-hmm. rhetoric, right? But he's not really followed through on that with real concrete action to support these strikes and to support these these workers. Sure. On Friday, he said, um, he said they have the right to strike for higher wages. Like, yeah, that's, that's in the National Labor Relations <laughs> Act from 1935. <laughs> Thank yeah. you for yeah. reading me the law. You know, like, that's not why we're asking you as pregnant president. Do you, you know, do we have the yeah. right? We know we have the right. Well, that's because so we've talked about before on the show, the PRO Act, right? And like, I think it's important to talk about like, how significant the PRO Act, if they did manage to pass it, how how significant that would be and how that would be real concrete action on the part of the administration beyond just rhetoric, right? Um, so what's, can you update on like, how, how much of a possibility that even is? I know at one point, it was supposed to be part of the reconciliation package, but I'm not sure it is anymore. I think it might have been negotiated out. What is the actual status on that? And, can, and maybe if you could just describe to people like what the PRO Act is supposed to do. Sure. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, the basics of the PRO Act is uh, it's it, PRO means protecting the right to organize. And the idea is basically that our labor law is broken. It favors the employer in all these kinds of ways for forming a union. A lot of people, you know, try to form a union, get fired, have basically no recourse. And it is reflected in like social, you know, the, the, the sociological level stuff, the stats, like union density keeps falling. We cannot organize new workers. And yet, like in poll after poll, there was a poll recently that workers under 30, 76% of them want to join a union or support unions. And 10% of workers are in unions. So what does that tell you? There's a huge gap in reality versus what people actually want, you know, in a democracy that should matter. Um, so the PRO Act is a, is a bunch of different things that are laws about basically what the penalties are for employers who break uh, already existing laws, who union bust, um, how can you form a new union. Uh, so in the reconciliation bill, it's still not, you know, the whole negotiations are totally fuzzy, but what people think is still in there, what people are talking about are just the penalties. And this alone would change so much for the labor movement. So right now, if you break uh, the law in, you know, if the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board says, you're an employer, you broke the law, you, you know, you, you intimidated your workers during a vote. Often what happens is uh, they put a piece of paper on the bulletin board and this is the public notice. Sometimes they have to read it out loud to the workers, um, but nothing. I mean, you know, it's like it's a clear cost benefit analysis. You union bust, you really don't face many penalties. So people union bust. So the penalties in the reconciliation, as far as anyone knows, is like 
stuff like it's $50,000 for every time you hold a meeting telling people how bad the union is, you know, while they're on the clock at work. Um, and you're, you as a middle manager are personally liable, things like that. So there are these penalties that are certainly not the whole PRO Act by any means, but are would be huge advances if they can survive the parliamentarian and Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. Uh, you the know, real power players in the U.S. government. Right. The, uh, <laughs> the god emperors of, of our lives, you know, um, president parliamentarian. Uh, you know, I, I would just say, like, it was great when Joe Biden said six months ago he's really excited about the PRO Act. But things I'm really excited about, I don't take six months to do anything yeah. about. So I I have like, <laughs> I was pretty supportive six months ago. I was less supportive five months ago. Now I think a lot of people are like, this needs to be in reconciliation. Sure. Uh, but it's already a total shadow of what the actual PRO Act was going to be. And it's not even clear it's going to survive. So you know, I uh, no comment, basically, whether Joe Biden actually supports labor, because I haven't seen it yet. Well, it's not like there's a history of organized labor in West Virginia, either, where Joe Manchin represents as well. So <laughs> right. makes sense that he would be opposed to that also. I mean, we're 450 <laughs> steelworkers are currently on strike. You know, like, it's not even like an ancient you history. You don't have to go back 100 <laughs> years. Like, the West Virginia teachers just struck two and three years, you know. Uh, So yeah, it's like, it's, it's, as always, labor in the Democratic Party is, is an embarrassment for everyone involved. And we all hope for the best is essentially the only rational position on this matter. The, the, the teacher strike of a few years ago, all 55 counties, teachers in all 55 counties, uh, you know, kicked off a wildcat strike and then ended up getting what they wanted as a result, because the power centers were brought to heel. And then for for Manchin to turn around and say that, like, anybody who supports reconciliation and wants Manchin to just, I don't know, comply or support it, whatever, doesn't really know. They're all out-of-staters trying to tell West Virginians what's best for them. I mean, they know what's best for them. These things, these planks, these components in reconciliation are widely popular. They pull at, like, 70 or 80% popularity and approval. Um when, when you ask Democratic voters, the idea that people don't like these things and he somehow has a finger on the pulse is just so antithetical to what it's. I mean, I grew up like in the tri-state area. Like I was like, I saw it. I was in, I was in West Virginia a lot. Like they're, they're not like just completely, they're not aliens. Like they're just like, <laughs> just like Youngstown. They're just like Cleveland. They're just like Pittsburgh. I mean, there's a little bit of Appalachia there, but they still have the same issues. They still have the same material needs and they especially need a, 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 a smooth transition to green energy if you want to keep people working there. Like, it's it's going to pollute their... It's going to continue to pollute their water. Coal is. And all of these stories fail to mention, for the most part, fail to mention Mansion's coal-like revenue and profit. So this idea that he, it's, it's all just a matter of, of people out of state not knowing what's best for West Virginians is, is simply ludicrous. Sure. I mean, also, let's just talk about recent union history. You know, one of my things is like people love to talk about the 30s and the 50s and the 70s. And I love that stuff, too. But let's talk about reality today. A lot of these things are still true. So here's a story nobody I saw cover, which is that uh, a factory that makes pharmaceuticals, opioids, right, was sold to the company Mylan. They, they made this in West Virginia, right? They, they had 850 union jobs in West Virginia making opioids, totally, you know, 
that's totally strange. It gets sold to Mylan, who is Joe, owned by Joe Manchin's daughter. She decides they're going to pull the company out of West Virginia. So you have 850 union workers who were making the opioids who now have no job because Joe Manchin's daughter decided to sell the plant. No, none of the politicians did anything about it. And now you've got more deindustrialized workers, victims of their own, you know, the own company they were working for. It's like the coal miner cycle just in a new iteration. So, you know, it's not ancient history, any of this stuff. This is like alive and well. And, and for labor's part of it, it's like, look, man, you guys need to at some point challenge the party on this. You cannot just be a junior partner forever. It's not working. So, yeah. Well, the stuff with the mansion is especially egregious as well, because considering the ways that he personally profits from a lot of this stuff, like it's so obviously clearly corruption. Yeah. And it's just, it's incredible, actually, for even for me from more of an outsider perspective to see this play out and to see this never really get discussed, this like this open, obvious corruption uh, and how you have one guy that's literally benefiting from, um, you know, certain industries and dictating what, what can be in a bill or what's not in a bill that it leads to his own personal profit. Like, it's it's really sick the way this has been completely normalized in American society, this level of, of official corruption with these public figures like Joe Manchin. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> Well, it's it's another thing I wanted to ask you about as well, Jonah, uh, considering your, your experience with the Bernie campaign. Uh, you know, one thing that, that's interesting, I think we're seeing play out in, in the States right now is that was the whole idea of, of Bernie running for president in the first place, right? Like everyone understood that Bernie's agenda was going to be blocked by people like Joe Manchin. And the question was, what are you going to actually do about that problem? Are you going to go the Obama way and say, well, and ben Manchin doesn't want to do it, so we give up preemptively? Or are you going to actually like start putting pressure on these people and try to force them to, to support the things that you want them to support? And that's the kind of interesting thing right now is we're seeing Bernie in a different role, obviously as not as the president, but still kind of trying to exert that influence and trying to do what he can to put that kind of pressure on people like Joe Manchin. And without really having the same level of influence as he would have had as the president, um, so that's kind of that's kind of fascinating to see. Like he wrote that he wrote that op-ed in the West Virginia paper the other day, and you have people kind of wringing their hands about it and saying like, "Oh, I can't believe how could Bernie have done this?" But this was always what his whole idea was behind running for president that he was he knew full well that people were going to block his this agenda, and he was going to pressure them to to do the right thing, and that's what he's trying to do now, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, what's interesting to me is like. Bernie is now in this position of trying to like negotiate with the uh, with the hand he was dealt, right? Like, and and what the past five, the five year Bernie war was about is we need a better hand, we need something we can work with. If he was president, it'd be a much better hand that he could play. Um, but you know, he's he's working in a really constrained position right now that is uh, not. You know, it's just not it's not uh, not that strategic, not not unstrategic, better than if he wasn't the budget chair. But like you're totally right, like using these pressure tactics and things like that. You know, the best thing about Bernie and, and this is something that's true about these big strikes, too, is is this function of, you know, what like Marxists call like class formation. The idea that like there's something out there's a group of people called workers, but they don't think of themselves as, you know, a group that has the same interests and needs to work together to do it. The thing that was amazing about Bernie is suddenly, and it's still true, you can just wear a Bernie shirt and people are like, oh, I get your whole deal. And we're on the same team and we have basically the same outlook. And and 
you know, for unions, this used to be really true. This used to be like crazy true. Like if you saw someone's union pin, you know, you could say we we live in the same neighborhood, we read the same books, we have the same, you know, look outlook on life. And part of what union busting has done is to make it mean less to be a member. In the best unions, you still see people who have like a badass Teamsters jacket and they're like, hell yeah, I'm a Teamster. I love Teamsters. I will never cross a picket line. Um, and strikes and big activity like this have a similar effect to the Bernie campaign. Like, I guarantee you now, no matter how this strike goes at John Deere, for the next 20 years, the people who were on this strike and their families, if you have like a one of these shirts I said, like, you know, essential in 2020, uh, prove it in 2021, that will forever mean some deep bond of understanding between people. And this is one of the things we don't have when we don't have an organized working class. That's what the whole Reagan project was about. Let's bust this up. You know, they're too, they're talking to each other too much. They're too, they're too on the same page. So, you know, Bernie to me is at his best. I know this isn't like, you know, when he's in Congress, he's got to do his maneuvers and all that. I'm down, do what you got to do. Um, but he's at his best when he's talking to the base and saying, here's what it means to be on the same team. Here's what you do if you're on that team. That's when, you know, he's articulating what it means to be part of the working class. Um, I mean, growing up near near Lordstown, we saw it all the time. And you saw the shirts, the hats, the jackets, like my entire childhood. Everyone was everyone at least knew somebody who is UAW. Uh but then, like, as time shifted, I mean, I was born in the 80s and just spent, you know, about 20-some years there, you kind of saw some of the rhetoric change as it started, like, after years and years of concessions, um, you know, shifts, shift eliminations, all this kind of stuff, the rhetoric would start to change, and it would be like, oh, man, the union was so dangerous back then, you know, like, it would liken them to, like a gang or like a mob and like how like corrupt they were and how they would force people into these these you know working on the uh, accepting these terms if they didn't even want to and that's how you got like you know right to work bullshit in ohio um but yeah i mean what what you're talking about is what the power centers feared and that's why they wanted people to be atomized that's why they want people to feel alone or to highlight and amplify differences between them um and we or to see blame it. like immigrants or other people that less yeah. punt to punch down when you feel like your rights are slipping away to blame you know people coming into the country or blame other people that that who's not don't actually have the responsibility yeah when you when you mentioned earlier uh, like the tier structure and how uh people were able to see through that bullshit of like okay yeah maybe this person's making more than me but we're all here for the same reason you see that play out in like policy debates like medicare for all or or free college you see you know, neoliberal politicians suggest, oh, you don't want the rich to benefit from that. They can afford their own college, you know, and try to pit you against each other with most people or many people believing, oh, well, you know what? It isn't in my best interest to support this policy because then the rich will get something and I'll get less. No, it's better for all of us if we just have it. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, you know, I, I think there's a, if I have, if I have one kind of like belief, it's that there's a hope that the unions can be the vehicle for this, but there's also a criticism, just like, you know, just like the Democratic Party left behind its New Deal politics, the unions left behind a lot of what made the unions make sense to people and what made the unions work for actual working people. So, you know, the UAW starting in the 80s started these concessionary contracts. There was a huge 
uh, bailout with Chrysler in 1979, and it just spread across the whole labor movement, giving stuff away because we're scared what's going to happen. We saw what happened to Petco. We don't want to test the waters too much. You know, they're telling us we're making too much wages and the company's going to fail. Well, okay, we'll give something back. You give back enough and people lose faith in the institutions. It's the same exact thing. You know, people don't like this uh, analogy because, you know, the Democratic Party is not the same as the unions. It's, it's a corporate-funded organization. But the fact is both have had the same experience of stop they stopped fighting as hard as they used to as hard as they saw you know as people saw their parents generation they stopped being connected uh to core issues like working class power in the workplace you know how much money do people make what are your rights um and and the unions went through a similar thing where they they weakened in a lot of ways not everywhere it's not i'm not I'm not saying unions suck, but in the same way that the Democratic Party is not living up to its own stated fulfill, you know, fulfilling its own stated goals and what it promises for regular working people. The same is true of a lot of unions. They're just not living up to the hopes that their members and workers put into them. And at a certain point, people just tune out, right? You see people stop participating in civic life, stop coming to union meetings, and they just say, fuck the union, fuck the Democratic Party. I, you know, if my naive hope, I guess, is that like, there is a way to turn that corner, where you can have people who've said, fuck the union for 20 years, if they see the union beginning to fight, and beginning to care about the things that they care about, it really can turn around. And that to me is like, you know, despite it being 10% of the workforce, all the, all these things you can say about a weaker union movement, like, I think that's going to be at the that's going to be at the core of any project of revival of you know a, a class politics in this country. Well, because also like the more activity that we see on that front, the more other really disenfranchised workers, like gig economy workers, for instance, are going to see that that's the pathway to actually like being able to eke out an existence that's not you know just getting the whatever handouts you can get from the your corporate masters but that's a way to live like with actual dignity and to have an actual career that's fulfilling and can can actually like lead you to have an okay lifestyle you know totally i mean someone mentioned the west virginia teachers the thing that you have to say about the west virginia teachers if we're going to talk about strike wave is that was a strike wave west virginia went kentucky went oklahoma went arizona went north carolina went south carolina went indiana went Colorado had a one-day strike, you know, and, and then it spread back to the big cities, Los Angeles in 2019. All this got cut off by the pandemic, but that was a strike wave. So we see the inspiration from West Virginia spread to another state because people are watching. And this is happening now. I mean, it's not happening as much as it should to be a real strike wave. But like, you know, to call what's what we're seeing now a strike wave, we would need to see John Deere goes, then Caterpillar goes, then GM goes. You know, people, workers watch each other. And if you talk to a union member, you know, or any worker who's really following this stuff, but especially union members, because they're organized and have some history of this stuff. You know, I was talking to electricians, IBEW electricians in Florida. They're watching that 2000 carpenters just struck in Washington state. It's a different union. It's totally different, like, you know, regional economy. There's all these differences between them, but that's real inspiration. And when we can... You know, if we really do see the kind of copycat action, uh, then I would really be like, okay, it's a strike wave. Right now, I'm like, yeah, strike wave. You know, like, could be <laughs> soon, maybe. What What about uh, the impact this would have or might have, might be having 
on workplaces organizing? Have you seen any up or is it too early to tell? I mean, look, it's all super anecdotal. We're talking, like I said, we're talking about small scale stuff, but I had someone reach out to me today on Twitter, say, I work at a competitor of deer. They're making better than us. How do I unionize? Like it's, it's in the ones and twos because we're not at scale yet, but I think there's a lot to be said for, um, demonstrative action, you know, uh, one thing people didn't talk much about at Bessemer, the Amazon workers, is that several of the leaders of the that that organizing project in Alabama were, were uh, ex-auto workers. They worked at auto plants that had left or, or they lost their job. And that stuff spreads. Uh, it's hard to characterize exactly. You know, it's not like one, it's not a straight path, A to B to C, and suddenly you're, you're all unionized. But these, these seeds get planted. And Part of the whole thing is that the more people that do that, the more seeds there are, right? So one of the things that's like, you know, IATSE members, God bless you if this contract is good. No one's seen the full language yet. There's things that seem great about it. Some of the lowest wage workers in the film and TV industry are going to get a big raise. There's good stuff in there for sure. But one of the things that's exciting about the idea of these people going on strike is that they will be forever changed by this experience. And then if they go to some other job, they'll know that, you know, whatever happens with the IATSE strike, at least I did it, you know, like I fought for myself once in my life and I can do it again. And you hear stories like this all the time. And the bigger the strike, the more you hear it. Like you would be shocked how many Teamsters I've talked to who were like, yeah, I struck for 15 days in 1997. It changed my whole life. Not because of the economics. I mean, that's part of it, but it's because it changes you as a person. So, you know, I do think if we see more strike activity, more stuff that seriously puts people through an experience like that, I do think we'll see more new organizing happening despite massive structural barriers. I mean, the PRO Act needs to happen for that to work, um, but, but big strikes have to happen too. I mean, I'm happy you brought up the Amazon strike because I had wanted to mention that next because that was a story like in this in this theme that we that a lot of people were paying attention to a couple months ago. It had this really disappointing result, but I I did hear a while back that 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 there was a possibility that they were going to redo the vote, that they were going to that that fight is not totally finished, and that they, that was really kind of like the only the the opening salvo basically between Amazon workers and the the corporate structure. Like, do you think we're going to see more? unionization efforts there specifically at Bessemer and elsewhere throughout Amazon? Oh, yeah. I mean, like, uh, I, I don't know the details. There's there's rumors that soon the labor board is going to order a redo of that election because of how messed up it was what Amazon did. I mean, they accessed the mailbox where the ballots were being stored. Yeah. You know, they installed a mailbox on the property <laughs> after specifically it said you can't collect ballots on site. They changed the stop stoplight in the town to make it so they couldn't talk to people parked at the at the red light so you know which is the exact kind of shit that the pro act would would ultimately deal with right and make it illegal to do this if we had the pro act they would be on the hook for millions of dollars with amazon who knows maybe they would just eat that but you know that's that's right now it's just like basically impunity i mean the punishment is a redo months later when people have been burned like that so i don't know what to say about that redo itself like it's the Amazon Bessemer campaign was was always like Bernie 2016 or or maybe even less than that in terms of like, could we really do it? It was always like insane underdog. You're going to organize one warehouse in the Deep South uh, against this massive company. And like that was never going to be the end. Also, because you can't have a union in one warehouse. You know, you can't. I mean, you legally you can. 
but economically you can't survive that, right? Like if you have, just imagine you're surrounded by thousands of other Amazon workers who have lower conditions, you'd have no leverage to push things up in your workplace. I mean, you could strike, there's ways you could do it, but like it was never the end game that like, yeah, we organized Bessemer and it's it's over, we won, yeah. you know? So just concretely on Amazon, like absolutely, the Teamsters are the big uh, people to watch on this Um the Teamsters have an election. So unions are democratic institutions. They have internal elections. There's an election happening right now. So any UPS driver you see has a ballot that was mailed to their house last week, sitting on their kitchen table or whatever it is. And there's two groups of people running. Uh, one of the groups is talking openly about a desire to strike UPS in 2023 as a way to bring up conditions and push the entire logistics industry higher, which would make conditions better at Amazon for organizing. Both of the slates have endorsed organizing at Amazon. Both of them say they're going to invest a lot of money in it. Um, it's a it's a it's a behemoth. And the other thing I would say, you know, not to douse cool water on people, is like we talk a lot about Amazon, but we don't talk about Walmart anymore. Walmart's the bigger yeah. employer. We don't even mention it. The unions don't even talk about it anymore. There was one big campaign for years at Walmart that they just basically stopped funding recently. So we are not close to a unionized Amazon, but I think the momentum is there to see more fights. There's going to be more Bessemers. I don't know, you know, can they win? Yeah. It's still David and Goliath. But if the Teamsters really go for it, if they really strike UPS and use that as leverage against Amazon, uh, you know, we could see something moving in the next few years. The anti-union stuff at Walmart too is also completely unhinged. I've watched some of like the anti-union oh videos that they oh show God. people. Like it's almost comical. These like these anti-union videos that they that they force people to watch. Yeah, yeah. It's, like it's grandma, amazing. you're a greeter at Walmart making, you know, fifteen dollars yeah. an hour and we don't want you talking to the organizer. It's like so dystopian. It's so bleak. <laughs> it's fucking weird. Um, yeah. You know, this and there's the map of every state, the biggest employer of every state. It's like half of them are Walmart, you know? Yeah. Uh it's yeah. like, oh, I was in a union in the GM plan. You don't want you don't want any of that, believe yeah. me. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this they is the made thing. me you know, sign a union card. I didn't even know what it was. Like, and they're talking about like they're these victims of some like conspiracy or totally. something. It's so messed up. Totally. I mean, I think, and that's the other thing about like wanting the unions to be better. It's like every time you negotiate a bad contract or or you know tell people we're going to go on strike and then you don't do it or you know whatever it is, don't organize a new shop. You're burning people. And they spread just like the thing I was saying about like good people spreading, you know, solidarity spreading and seeding new organizing. It cuts both ways. So like my, you know, my thing is like we have these unions. We need to make them as strong as possible. Um, and there's, you know, thankfully there's like millions of union members who feel the same way and run for office and challenge the status quo and all that stuff. So it's, you know, it's kind of happening around you. You don't realize. But when you see a UPS driver, when you see a postal worker, when you see, you know, most of your city employees, all the teachers in your state, these people are all parts of unions. There's elections in these unions. Those elections say, are we going to go on strike? Are we going to bargain for, uh, you know, better wages? Are we going to fight? Are we going to endorse better politicians? All this stuff. Um, and it's like kind of the secret world. Once you get tuned into it, um, it kind of things come to life. You're like, uh, there's, there's all this activity happening. And the question is, how do you, you know, put it all together and make it intelligible for people who uh, are beyond the workplace. Um, even if it's so like you said, Bessemer was a long shot. So even if workers try to unionize and they're, you know, unfairly, uh, are they're, they're met with unfair, illegal conditions through like the, 
the mailbox, the the anti-union trainings and messaging even in their bathroom stalls, the coercion from from people on the floor. They still, I would argue, you know, scared Amazon. And I think like you even had at that moment, I remember not that this to go back to our Biden conversation, not that he's like, uh, you know, the best on this right now. But like he he even issued like a, a video statement. He didn't explicitly say vote for the union. He just said you can vote. It's kind of what he's saying now. It's like you have the right to vote. Yeah. Um, and, you know, some kind of like bland statement. But like it got a ton of attention. And, you know, some people could argue that they scared them and that is motivating them to continue upping their pay. I mean, I think now there's they're bragging about what $21 an hour which is mm-hmm. you know much much higher than where it was even just a few years ago I mean Bernie led the charge to get it up uh, I think what 17 or something a couple years ago and now it's going up even more these fights even if these little battles are not victories you know in in like unionizing on, on your on your floor you're still sending a chill down their spine because they know what's coming and they know they need to keep up because they don't want you to be unionized because then they have to give you what you want so um right. can you talk about how these are ultimately part of the larger goal sure i mean one thing you have to acknowledge is uh there's this report came out five or ten years ago maybe ten years ago from the international monetary fund not a pro-union group that said no. basically when union density goes up income inequality goes down it's not because all of the people are in a union and they're making more money. It's because unions drive wages up, they drive benefits up, they drive the economy upwards, right, for for the people at the bottom. So there's a basic sense in which John Deere workers right now, if they win this strike, it's not true that you're going to get the same raise they get. But if they win, if more people win, if 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 uh, there can be some more victories like this. I mean, if Amazon and Bessemer had won. I, I do think you're right that they scared the company a little bit. And often what an anti-union move that's uh, counterintuitive is they raise wages for everybody or give everybody a paid holiday. They give you some little crumb of it, right? They say, you can have a little bit right now as a treat, and then you'll <laughs> drop the campaign. Um, and, you know, in some sense, that's that's the strategy, right? Like, uh, I think I think there's limits to it. But in some real sense, if enough workers strike and win, uh, everything will get better for working class people, non-union, union alike. The other thing, the other side of that basically is like, it's not just about um, people, there's not gonna be enough unions that they all strike and everyone's in a union and your union won more wages. It's only gonna be that the organized workers are leading the way, even in like whatever, like Norway or Sweden, places people like to talk about. Uh, you know, whatever, don't quote me on any specific country, but their, their density is like, it's not 90% for the most part. It's like, you know, they get up to 50%, 70%. There's always a group of non-union workers in the economy for whatever reason, but they're led by the unionized workers, which is why it's literally true that if the John Deere workers can win, it's they're holding the line for everyone else, especially those in their industry, especially those in Iowa, the warehouse next door. Um, but they're really literally on strike for the entire working class, whether they know it or not. Right. That's not how, you know, people leftists who want to be part of the unions. We want to say, think about it. You're, you're in the same thing as the McDonald's worker, even if you're not in the same union. We want to broaden it, of course. But even if they don't realize it, John Deere workers are striking for everybody. 
Well, that's a great place to leave it, I think. Um, Jonah, thanks so much for coming on the show to uh, to break all this stuff down. Really, really highly uh, informative, this this talk. I really appreciate you taking the time. I think that their, their listeners are going to appreciate it, too. Yeah, thanks for having me. Keep talking about labor. Absolutely. And where can people read about labor? Where is your, your Substack located? Uh, I, well, I recommend two things. Labor Notes, labornotes.org. Uh, this is like the entire uh, part of the, we, we call it putting the movement back in the labor movement. So check out labornotes.org. You can subscribe. We have events. We have an event this Wednesday night. Uh, you can also follow my Substack. It's who gets the bird, just how it sounds, dot substack.com. And that's a weekly Substack that basically I obsessively try to list everything a union has done in the U.S., in the past week uh, and we'll give you a real-time view of you know there is actually a labor movement in this country and it is actually doing stuff nice nice well thank you for joining us thanks for having me hey everyone thank you for listening to the insurgents if you want to subscribe to the show you can find us on itunes or spotify or at substack theinsurgents.substack.com you'll get the latest episodes delivered straight to your inbox as well as our newsletter on twitter we are at insurgents pod tweet at us harass ken in our replies and then send us your hate mail to theinsurgentspod at gmail.com thank you once again for listening <laughs>